Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson. A rare animal appeared in the Rose Garden on September 30th, 1990, that some say hasn't been seen much in Washington, at least in peacetime. A president of one party flanked by the leaders of another party that controlled Congress. They were there to promote a substantial piece of legislation. It had been produced on the forge of the bipartisan anvil. It was a moment of coming together. But while its example may bind those who pine for such cooperation in the model of our founders, it was this event, this seeming act of togetherness, that did cleave the Republican Party in twain, hasten the end of a presidency and the decline of a cooperative era, and ushered in a new combative norm that we have with us today. Our whistle stop today is the 30th of September, 1990. Twin Peaks was the most popular television show. Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait the previous month and was facing the threat of military retaliation. But the news of the day on that overcast Sunday was the federal government. It was on the verge of a shutdown. The nation's newspapers told the tale on their front pages. State braces for layoffs, service cuts if talks fail read the headline on the front page of the Indianapolis Star. The article read, If Congress cannot come to terms on trimming the federal budget by midnight tonight, the law will automatically cut government spending. By $85 billion, government workers will be ordered to take days off, and citizens will find many government services dwindling. But with the nation holding its breath, a late-breaking development brought the cameras out on Sunday to the White House. After five grinding months of bargaining, 11 days of horse trading by meat-fed men at Andrews Air Force Base and late-night sessions at the Capitol, after all of that, an agreement had been reached. President Bush stood before an array of Brooks Brothers suits containing the leadership of both parties, the leaders of the budget committees, and other members of both parties. It looked like the group photo of the top sales performers of the Midwestern region. The president, George Bush, announced what had been accomplished. This is priority for our nation. This is something that the country is calling out for and world markets are looking for. And so there will be some tough fights ahead. But I have pledged to the speaker, uh, to Congressman Gephardt, uh, to Bob Michael on our side, to George Mitchell and Bob Dole and the Senate pro tem leader, Senator Byrd, that I will do everything I can to lay aside partisanship here and to take this, take the case for this deal to the American people in every way I can. Sometimes you don't get it just the way you want, and this is the time, that's such a time for me, and I expect it's such a time for everybody standing here. But it's time we put the interests of the United States of America first and get this deficit under control. And Mr. Speaker, I'm grateful to you, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans, that have seen the interest of this see that the interest of this country come first. Thank you for your uh, what you've been doing, and I'd appreciate it if you want to say a few words. The Omnibus Reconciliation Act of 1990 raised taxes and put in place what its authors thought would be spending restrictions to finally tackle the problem of deficits and the debt. The cuts for the fiscal year amounted to 40 billion dollars, and plans were put in place for a 500 billion dollar reductions over the following five years. Neither side liked it, but as they stood in the Rose Garden, the leaders knew it was the best they could do in a divided system with a Republican president and a Congress led by the opposite party. Here's Republican Senate leader Bob Dole. Mr. President, thank you very much, and I want to thank my colleagues and, again, particularly Dick Gephardt. Wait, stop the tape. That's Bob Dole, who, as Ford's vice presidential nominee, was known as a hatchet man for his political attacks. He had been chairman of the Republican Party, so he knew how to fight politically. But he's thanking the Democratic leader of the House. 
This would be like Chuck Schumer today thanking Kevin McCarthy, the Republican majority leader of the House, before starting his remarks. It's, it would be a, a relatively unheard of today. More from Bob Dole. The naysayers, the nitpickers may have a field day because the easy vote in this case is to find something you don't like and vote no. But in my view, we owe more to the American people than finding fault with what I consider to be a good agreement, good, positive, solid agreement that in my view will help the American economy and demonstrate to the American people who are sometimes somewhat cynical that the Congress and the President of the United States can work together and we can look ahead and we can do the right thing for our country. Then House Majority Leader Dick Kephart, the Democrat, spoke, laying out the stakes. Today we face a weakened economy and high rates of interest and inflation. Tomorrow, in absence of an agreement, massive across-the-board budget cuts would occur. The alternative to this agreement is fiscal chaos. In the fall of 2017, Donald Trump is trying to make flickering overtures to Democrats. There is talk of bipartisanship. There's also a bipartisan effort to improve health care, a borning in the Senate. Now, that would be nice. It's what people say they want. But Carl Hulse correctly writes recently in The New York Times that bipartisan work is almost a forgotten thing to many lawmakers in Washington. They don't know what it looks like. Well, this is a story of what it looks like. And it is not something that's terribly pretty. Is bipartisanship really what people want? And who are the they that we're talking about? Most people say that they want cooperation between the parties. You can, in fact, you can get a majority of the country to say that. But most people or that majority, I should say, aren't the people who drive politics. The interest groups and the campaign financiers, the people who write the checks, are the ones who drive the, who have the power over politicians and drive the politics. Ideologues are also powerful. So while the majority today may say they want compromise, the people who speak the loudest want lawmakers to, quote, stick to their principles. And that's what this story is about, a balance between those two things. A flashpoint for this clash between those who want politicians to stick by their principles and those who want them to compromise came in this budget agreement in 1990. It initiated an important shift in the Republican Party between the politics of pragmatism and the politics of purity, the decline of George Herbert Walker Bush's patrician politics of prudence, and the rise of Newt Gingrich's tougher sort. If it's not the initiating point in this shift, it's a bend in the road sharp enough to make the tires squeal. As the Republican Party became more conservative, more doctrinaire about tax cuts in specific, but also about the idea of compromise in general. Our drama dawns in the spring of 1990, when the fears of an economic disaster were big. After the recession of 1981 and 82, America enjoyed many fat years, but the prosperous years had left residue, the debt, the accumulation of the deficit, which is the amount each year that spending outpaces revenues, that is to say tax receipts. The federal debt had tripled from 1980 to 1989 in the Reagan years. Debt as a share of GDP went from 30% to 50%. That figure matters even more, say some economists, because the debt can be high in nominal terms, but not a drag on the economy. If the economy is banging on like gangbusters, but the larger the percentage of debt to the economy, the more of a drag it suggests. As growth slowed in 1989, economists focused on the deficit as the culprit of the weakness. The apocalyptic mind could satisfy itself with facts at hand. The economy could, in fact, tank. A high deficit meant money was being spent covering public funds, which meant an increase in interest rates. And if the interest rates are high, that means it's expensive to borrow, which means in the private marketplace, companies who want to borrow to build new plants or hire new people or increase wages 
They can't do that borrowing because it's too expensive. And without all of that activity, growth slows, which means lower tax receipts, which means it's harder to decrease the deficit. And that means the debt grows and the cycle spirals. George Bush wrote in his diary as he prepared to become president, if it weren't for the deficit, I'd be feeling pretty good these days. That quote from his diary comes from John Meacham's Destiny and Power. You've heard me quote it before, a really great book, and we'll be relying on it pretty heavily throughout this whistle stop. One possible rescue to this debt and deficit dilemma would be for the Federal Reserve to just lower interest rates. Money would be easier to lend. Companies would borrow the money, build new things. Growth would go up. Bada-bing! Our deficit problem would be fixed. We'd get fresh tires for the pickup and new lawn chairs. But the Federal Reserve was not lowering rates. That meant there wasn't a lot of money in the economy to finance that activity. Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan was keeping rates high because he believed that until the deficit was reduced, or at least spending was put on a sustainable path, which is to say... If that didn't happen, then you would have a situation where deficit spending plus lower rates would lead to too much money in the economy. And having too much money in the economy as a result of a lot of spending and lower rates would mean inflation and inflation would lead to a recession because it, A, diminishes people's savings. People with fixed salaries don't have the purchasing power that they used to, which means they don't buy stuff, which means you don't have a healthy consumer economy. People living off fixed incomes get screwed because they can't buy what they used to. And uncertainty about everything that comes from inflation would mean corporations wouldn't be as aggressive and that would hurt economic output. So this is the pickle President Bush was in and Congress, too. They had to deal with the debt. When he took office, President Bush said fighting the deficit and debt was his chief domestic priority. And after his first year, the situation was getting worse. The deficit had been estimated at $100 billion, but by the end of the fiscal year, it had increased that estimate to $300 billion. But the federal budget had not been balanced since Lyndon Johnson was president. So President Bush had to either lower spending or raise taxes or come up with some combination of both. The problem for the president... President George Herbert Walker Bush, was that he had run for president in 1989, promising that he would not increase taxes. Well, that undersells it, actually. Bush had created the modern-day red line on the question of taxes. Here he is. I'm the one who will not raise taxes. My opponent now says... My opponent now says he'll raise them as a last resort or a third resort. But when a politician talks like that, you know that's one resort he'll be checking into. And I... My opponent, my opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will, and the Congress will push me to raise taxes, and I'll say no, and they'll push, and I'll say no, and they'll push again, and I'll say to them, read my lips, no new taxes. Now, that's President Bush in 1988. We should step back a little bit more, though, to give us the full weight of this business. In 1984, Walter Mondale, running for president on the Democratic ticket, had promised to raise taxes and had tried to make his case for raising taxes one that was based on candor and doing the tough, hard right thing. We'll get to that later in our narrative. But for the moment, the point here is really to, to put this tax promise in the proper political context. Here's Walter Mondale in 1984. Here's the truth about the future. We are living on borrowed money and borrowed time. These deficits hike interest rates, clobber exports, stunt investment, kill jobs, 
undermine growth, cheat our kids, and shrink our future. Whoever is inaugurated in January, the American people will have to pay Mr. Reagan's bills. The budget will be squeezed. Taxes will go up. And anyone who says they won't is not telling the truth to the American people. I mean, I mean business. By the end of my first term, I will reduce the Reagan budget deficit by two-thirds. Let's tell the truth. That must be done. It must be done. Mr. Reagan will raise taxes, and so will I. He won't tell you. I just did. Okay, so there we have two different versions of Macho. George Bush, no new taxes in 1988, and it's the winning formula. Walter Mondale in 84, Macho was saying that he was going to raise taxes, and that was the losing formula. So that's a pretty strong message being sent to politicians who are making tax and spending decisions. Another note on the Bush front, you'll remember from your 1988 campaign whistle stop that George Bush had a particular reason to be muy macho. He had been called a wimp on the cover of Newsweek and was trying to get out from under Ronald Reagan's shadow. Reagan had agreed to tax increases during his presidency, but never mind. The myth had to be adhered to by Bush. If you want to go back and listen to that episode of Whistle Stop about the 1988 race and masculinity, the air date is December 2, 2015. Okay, so after putting on those macho pants, the president couldn't agree to increase taxes. Again, from his diary in Meacham's book, I cannot break my read-the-lips pledge. I would be totally destroyed if I did. But the problem was that Congress was controlled by Democrats, and they wanted tax increases and also spending increases. Uh, and, of course, Bush wanted spending reductions. So, and boy, was that Congress controlled by Democrats at the time. I know it's in Republican hands today, but back then, 250 Democrats in the House, 180 Republicans. In the Senate, it was 55 Democrats and 45 Republicans. So Bush had to make a deal with the other side. That was the logic of the politics at the time. Lawmakers don't like to make hard choices, but they had this one before them, and the drama was brought to a head by a previous piece of legislation meant to control Congress and force Congress to make hard choices. That legislation was called Graham-Rudman, Graham-Rudman-Hollings sometimes, as it's known for its third member there, Fritz Hollings, a senior senator, well, no, at the time he was a junior senator, from uh, South Carolina. Anyway, by the rules of Graham-Rudman, Congress, if they didn't make the spending cuts, didn't do their job— through the appropriations process, automatic ones would kick in. And in this case, a 31% reduction in defense spending and a 35% reduction in non-defense spending. So this was the hammer above everyone, to mix a metaphor. Something had to be done or the big cuts would take place. But the drama started before the emergency moment in the fall of 1990. It was kind of a six-month process where the White House started working on the budget with Democrats so the first meeting was in the spring. Bush invited congressional leaders to the White House. And the reason he was inspired was not simply because of Graham Rudman was going to kick in on the uh, at the end of September, which is the end of the fiscal year. But that spring, his Treasury Secretary, Nick Brady, had brought in the central bankers from around the world to a reception. And at that reception, President Bush heard the serious concerns from economists around the world that the United States needed a five-year program for stabilizing the world. And that little factoid 
comes from John Sununu's oral history at the Miller Center, where Sununu talks about the 1990 budget deal, as do many others. The fortunes of man are often set in motion long before the dramatic action takes place on the public stage, and only through the rearview mirror of history do incidents that passed relatively unnoticed come to be seen as ones that rule the fates of man. Or, put another way, history allows the writer to rewind the story to make some pretty obscure initiating events. And so, during his time as senator in the 70s and 80s, a man named John Tower, representing the state of Texas, was known around Washington as a drinker and a man who liked the ladies. This fact may have sunk George Herbert Walker Bush's re-election chances. Why? How? Well, it was these proclivities from Senator Tower that kept him from becoming the Secretary of Defense in 1989, a sign of how times had changed. The private life of a longtime senator would not have hurt Tower a generation earlier. But the Senate rejected Tower in 1989, the first time in 30 years that a president was denied his choice of a cabinet member. George Bush, recouping, named a replacement, Dick Cheney, then the number two in the House Republican leadership. That cleared the way for a man named Newt Gingrich to take the number two spot. Newt Gingrich was also in himself a sign of how the times were changing. He was not a fan of, or of the fetish of bipartisanship that restrained members of both parties and allowed them to do deals with their opponents. He was an ideologue whose tactics were bare-knuckled. They had to be, argued Gingrich. Look at how many Republicans were in office and how many Democrats were. In order to win back control of the Congress, they had to smear the entire Democratic operation. In 1988, after Democrats defeated another nominee, Robert Bork, for the Supreme Court, Gingrich had compared the ideological battle he was fighting against the left as requiring the, quote, scale and duration and savagery that is only true of civil wars. The Georgia congressman's main target was Democratic House Speaker Jim Wright, who Gingrich relentlessly pursued for his ethical lapses. And in May of 1989, just a couple of months after John Tower had lost and Cheney was on his way, Wright was forced to resign in the wake of 69 ethics charges in the House. Gingrich was responsible for that groundswell that had led to those ethics charges. He had cast Wright as a malevolent force of the left. George Bush, on the other hand, spoke as if from a different time. In his statement reflecting on Wright's departure, President Bush said, In spite of the present situation, I believe the Wright tenure was one of effectiveness and dedication to the Congress of the United States. So on the one hand, you had Gingrich using Wright as a stand-in for the entire left and therefore the Democratic Party, arguing he was corrupt to the core and that it was his ideology and his party that had set in that rot. George Bush, on the other hand, at the moment of Wright's ignominy, was nevertheless hearkening to all the other things that he had done and suggesting it was possible, despite this besmirchment, that a person could still have served his country and Congress with dedication and valor. Just so you don't think things are any more awful today than they were back then, after Wright's departure, Tom Foley of Washington State became Speaker. Lee Atwater, who had run Bush's successful 1988 campaign, in part by savaging Michael Dukakis, turned his affections to Foley. The Republican Party put out a press release that read, Tom Foley, out of the liberal closet. It then compared his record with Barney Frank, the openly gay Democratic congressman from Massachusetts. Republican operatives fanned rumors that Foley was gay. The new speaker wound up having to attest to his heterosexuality on television and point out that he had been married for more than 20 years. On July 26, 1990, George Bush formally broke his pledge of no new taxes in a White House statement. And here is that statement as I read it now to you. 
It is clear to me, wrote President Bush, that both the size of the deficit problem and the need for a package that can be enacted require all the following. Entitlement and mandatory program reform, tax revenue increases, growth incentives, discretionary spending reductions, orderly reductions in defense expenditures and budget process reform to assure that any bipartisan agreement is enforceable and that the deficit problem is brought under responsible control. The bipartisan leadership agree with me on these points. Did you hear it in there? Revenue increases. That was the breaking of the pledge, though you can tell uh, from all of that other stuff that the president was hoping to get a lot more of what he wanted in exchange for breaking his pledge. Capital gains tax, for example, very important to Republicans, was referred euphemistically in that list as growth incentives. Why did they use the euphemism? Well, because in these negotiations, it's easier for Democrats to give in on capital gains if it's called growth incentives, which is less incendiary than capital gains tax reductions. The New York Times immediately ferreted out the news. Here's the headline of the next day's paper. Bush now concedes a need for tax revenue increases to reduce deficit in budget. According to John Meacham's Bush book, Vice President Quayle heard the news while he was in the shower. This is what the vice president said to Meacham. I probably should have looked at the drain because that's where the Republican Party's best issue, the one that had gotten us elected in 1980, 84, and 88, the one that had, more than any other, made the Reagan revolution possible, was headed. Immediately, Bush and his team were asked whether he had regretted the decision to break his word. We feel, said the president's spokesman Marlon Fitzwater, that he said the right thing then, and he is saying the right thing now. Bush wrote in his diary, again, diaries obtained by Meacham for his book, our people were running and screaming, and I can understand why. I guess this is the biggest test of my presidency. Time will tell. It's fair to point out that when he wrote that in his diary, Saddam Hussein had not yet invaded in Kuwait, which would pose a a bigger test, some would argue, to his presidency. And then you would also argue that his successful and careful management of the end of the Cold War might have been a bigger threat, too. You can uh, wrestle that out in the church basement. President Bush took to the press room the next day after the New York Times headline and his announcement in that press release to try to frame his move in a different way. After a long preamble at the beginning of the press conference in which he introduced, uh, I should say, introductory remarks about all the other things he was doing, the bushel of accomplishments, essentially trying to overwhelm this new news, the president got the questions that he knew would come first. The first question came from the AP's Terry Hunt. And then the questions, they just kept a coming. Mr. President, I'd like to ask you about your reversal on no new taxes. Do you consider that a betrayal of your promise? And what do you say to Republicans who complain that you've robbed them of the same campaign issue that helped get you elected? Well, I don't, I, th- I think what I consider it is a necessary step to get stalled budget negotiations moving. And I am very encouraged with the approach taken now by Republicans and Democrats in this, uh, in these important uh, discussions that are going on. Much more important today is getting this deficit down, continuing economic expansion and employment in this country. So that's the way I'd respond to it. Do you believe it will it will hurt your credibility? No, not in the long run. Why not? What people are already because what people are interested in are jobs economic growth. People know this deficit is bad. Uh, people know that we're going to have to take some action. And uh, that's why I think not. But what will you say to American people who said you made a promise 
Not to, no new taxes. No I'll new say, taxes. I take a look at a new situation. I see an enormous deficit. Uh, I see uh, a savings and loan problem out there that has to be resolved. And uh, like Abraham Lincoln said, I'll think anew. I'm not, I'm not violating or getting away from my fundamental uh, conviction on taxes, anything of that nature, not in the least. But what I've said is on the table, and let's see where we go. And so this is one of the key questions raised by this issue for a president. And for our modern-day assessment of the presidency, can a president think anew, as Lincoln said, and as Bush quoted him as saying, do people want that, or do they want a president to stick to what he said before, what he said during the campaign? The campaign, as we all know, that has nothing to do, or very little to do anyway, with actually what a president faces when they come into office. And secondarily, a campaign that we know always presents a president with things that have nothing to do, or very little to do, with what's talked about during the campaign. What allowance is there for that in the system? When we elect president, is it for him to think for himself or to stay tied to the promises he has made in the hurly-burly of the campaign? Well, it depends on the promises he's made, of course, in the context, but it was clear in Bush's case that he was being blamed and would be blamed not just for changing a position, but for a failure of character and a capitulation and a caving in to all that was wrong in Washington. Those were the higher order failures, which are more damaging than simply somebody changing their mind. And the question is, is that fair? Is there room for another evaluation? What if this was an evaluation? You might disagree with the president's decision on pure policy grounds, but recognize that his job, the political landscape, and his judgment have taken him another way, which seems you might knock him down a point. But you wouldn't necessarily go all the way to saying he had a fundamental flaw that made him a bad fit for the office. That was the assessment of someone on his own team, that harsher one. The question would never have occurred, of course, to our founders because the answer was obvious for them. When a president was elected, it was to do exactly what Bush was claiming for himself in this moment. He was reading the moment to bind yourself to a commitment made in a campaign where passion and not reason prevailed would have seemed to our founders like madness. A, that any president would have promised to do anything would have been madness because, of course, the job was to use your reason in the moment. So how could you possibly promise anything beforehand? And secondly, you really wouldn't promise to do anything that was based on a bargain with the voters because to do so would suggest that you were hooking yourself up to the whims of the people. And that was madness, our founders believed. But wait a minute, don't presidents have to be honest? Yes, but a change of mind is what presidents are supposed to do. To evaluate things differently is not a lie. It's not a trust issue. It's a president performing the key part of his job as it was conceived. And he can be faulted for doing it incorrectly. But that doesn't mean it's a lie. Well, that wasn't how conservatives saw it. After the press conference, negotiations continued between the White House, led by the Office of Management and Budget Director Dick Darman, and Congress, with conservatives rumbling on the side. Darman was considered a squish by conservatives. He'd hated the no new taxes line during the campaign in Bush's speech, and Darman believed that tax increases of some form were going to be the only way to get a workable deal on the deficit. Eventually, negotiations between the White House and Congress weren't getting anywhere. White House aides and Republicans blamed Democrats for leaking, which is why the negotiations weren't going so well. Everybody would get behind closed doors and they'd talk about a trade-off. And then suddenly the next day, the Washington Post would have a headline reading, Phil Graham wants Medicare cuts. Graham was a key Republican senator engaged in the talks. So something had to be done to put them in a new posture before that crucial October deadline. 
A government shutdown would freak out the markets and add energy to this uh, recession that Bush feared was a borning. And this mattered globally. The United States needed to be on firm footing globally because it was trying to put together a global coalition against Saddam Hussein and maintain its pressure on the Soviet Union. So Democrats and Republicans agreed to to move the whole business discussion to Andrews Air Force Base. That's the Air Force Base outside of Washington where Air Force One flies out of. Going to Andrews limited the number of people who could be in the room, though not really, because a lot of the members of Congress showed up. So there were, particularly the Democrats, there were just like busloads of members in the House and the Senate. But it did focus the mind. Here's Fred McClure in his oral history at the Miller Center. McClure was the legislative director for the Bush White House. It's kind of like having the peace talks at Camp David, said McClure. It was, let's get everybody out of our environment where we normally do it and put everybody on somewhat equal ground and we can hide things. It isn't over in the Finance Committee room or the Ways and Means Committee room where thousands and thousands of people can get in, even though we had leaks and all that kind of stuff during the process. But at least it was a self-contained world. And that didn't include lobbyists for interest groups or various clients and businesses. It was basically principles principles meaning the main players. It was kind of like the peace talks. It kind of gave it some heft. It really was something where we're going to try and go away from here and do a deal. You could keep people there. And it was not as easy to go run off to another subcommittee meeting because you had to leave to go to Andrews. In the end, the deal worked out at Andrews actually didn't increase income taxes. It increased taxes on gas, tobacco, and alcohol, violating the Read My Lips pledge, but not going nearly as far as it could. As Newt Gingrich got comfortable in his new post, the papers in Washington were full of stories comparing the Bush and Gingrich approaches. A fight was inevitable, and then after the tax pledge was broken in the summer, it became just a matter of time before that fight would occur. But John Sununu, the chief of staff for President Bush, in a look back at the 1990 deal, said that at this point, after Andrews, which is, again, we're at the end of September now. This is the Andrews concludes right before that Rose Garden ceremony that was the start of our narrative, that at this point, Gingrich was on board with the agreement as it started to be hammered out, including with those tax increases. This is important because as the drama unfolds, Gingrich's change of mind became seen as a move not for policy's sake, but for personal aggrandizement. Now, before you listen to this, Foley, Tom Foley that uh, Sununu is talking about here, he was the House Speaker. George Mitchell is the Senate Democratic leader. The White House was under the assumption that this was acceptable. Everybody that that we had contacted that was part of the process agreed to it. We sat down with the Democrats, confirmed to them that we had a deal. Tom Foley and George Mitchell went back to their much larger gaggle. Uh, They had the majorities in House and Senate, their larger gaggle of members of the House and Senate. And finally... The leadership in Congress, the Democratic leadership in Congress, the Republican minority leadership in Congress, and the president agreed we had a deal that was going to go to a vote. In between that process, we began to hear rumblings that some of the more conservative members of the House, led by Speaker Gingrich, were uncomfortable with the package. We could never identify what specifically they did not like. The comment always came back, it had taxes, but everybody knew from the very beginning after the initial process started that there would be a balance between revenue and and spending of roughly three to one. But when Gingrich was called to the White House on the 30th of September for that Rose Garden ceremony, that it was at the start of our tale, there was a confrontation. 
President Bush had been in New York for the U.N. General Assembly and then had flown back to Washington. Gingrich was there with all the other leaders, and he told the president, I can't do this. It breaks your word, and it's a mistake, and I won't do it. Bush noted in his diary that Gingrich had no actual plan of his own. In my mind, Gingrich told Meacham later, it was a betrayal of his pledge and a betrayal of Reaganism. In the minds of the Bush people, it was a betrayal. Budget director, the late Dick Darman, said that the White House was not given serious notice by Gingrich and that he would balk at the deal and that this revolt was, quote, an act of political sabotage. According to, to a Bob Woodward account of all of this, in one 1992 memo, Darman wrote in capital letters of the, quote, 1990 Gingrich stab in the back. Gingrich was unrepentant in the Woodward piece, who, which was written in 2012. Here's Gingrich in that Woodward piece. It was destructive. But Gingrich said he was seeking to make such an approach, quote, so unbelievably expensive that you couldn't sustain it. Gingrich defined the budget revolt as, quote, a major turning point for the whole society because it, quote, deepened people's anger. And then Gingrich said in this Woodward piece of his role, quote, I am the leader, insider revolutionary in this country. He continued, if you're writing the history of modern conservatism, I'm at least in one of the chapters. So, Newt Gingrich thinks this is an important moment. Now, though Gingrich wasn't there, the White House ceremony nevertheless took place. And then there was a vote in October. The Andrews Air Force Base deal was defeated by a coalition of conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats. This is on October 5th. It was a big defeat. So Congress passes a stopgap funding bill to keep the government running until October 12th. Then the negotiators went back to the drawing board. But this is where... Republicans by blocking that first deal in this. It was basically conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats who killed the Andrews deal. But that put the Republicans in a weaker position because of the balance of Congress. To get a further agreement would mean buying more Democratic votes. Well, you can only do this with one way, which would be to say increasing spending or increasing taxes to buy those Democratic votes. If Republicans had been on board with the original Version They may not have liked it, but they it wouldn't be as bad as what they later were going to have to do in negotiations. And so they sat down again, negotiated a new agreement, and it was far worse by the standards of many Republicans. The new agreement did, in fact, then touch tax rates. So the government actually shuts down. And then in the early morning hours of the 8th of October, a weary and really super divided House passed the budget plan. And the Democrats had squeezed out of the negotiations between the defeat and this new bill fewer Medicare cuts than the plan that had been agreed to out at Andrews. And it also left room in the deal for cutting capital gains, but in exchange for raising taxes on the wealthy. And that's the part of the income tax piece that wasn't in the original Andrews bill. So that was worse from the Republican perspective as a result of this combined conservative Republican liberal Democratic revolt. What Gingrich did was in style a precursor of what you see Ted Cruz and others doing today, particularly lots of members of the Freedom Caucus in the House. There were new pathways to power that could be won by bucking the White House, even if you were a party leader as Gingrich was. He was able to use talk radio and other avenues to get the word out to the grassroots. And that's something we see, of course, well today. You didn't have to go along to get along, or get along to go along, sorry. Or whichever you did, you didn't have to do it. Here's Bush talking about this in retrospect, talking about his no new taxes pledge. It did destroy me. The problem with the tax pledge was the rhetoric was so hot. This is to Meacham. Peggy Noonan, you know. Noonan was the Reagan speechwriter who had pinch hit for that convention speech for Bush. 
Here's Bush again. I'm the man and that kind of stuff. I felt uncomfortable with some of that, but it was persuasive. The convention loved it. When people ask me as they do now, did you make any mistakes? I say, yeah. One was to say no more taxes, period. I won't raise taxes. It was a mistake, but I meant it at the time. And I meant it all through my presidency. But when you're faced with the reality, the practical reality of shutting down the government or dealing with a hostile Congress, you get something done. So President Bush got something passed. He got something done. He got the bipartisan kind of agreement that people talk about. But there was a cost. And the cost was big enough to not only hurt President Bush in his reelection campaign, but it was at a cost that that split the Republican Party in ways we see having been split even more today. A split between pragmatism and purity. Pragmatism seen by the purists as capitulation, as being as giving in to your principles. And here's how John Meacham concludes his assessment of the 1990 budget deal. Talking about Bush here, his very success at consensus leadership, particularly on the federal budget in 1990, sowed the seeds of a sustained conservative rebellion in 91 and 92. The combined with economic recession proved too much for the president. His hours of victory led to his hours of defeat. But then from the Gingrich perspective, defeat indeed, but defeat for the right reasons, which is to say he didn't believe enough in a limited government of the kind that Gingrich and those conservatives believed in, a government that was smaller in what it spent and smaller in what it took in. And then Gingrich and his allies would use this uh, hardline approach to regain congressional control after 40 years of Democratic control of Congress, and then would achieve a balanced budget in negotiations with President Clinton, would reform welfare in negotiations with President Clinton, and would change the budget trajectory more in line with what they would argue are core conservative principles. And so if you look at it from the Bush perspective, this is the death of a certain kind of republicanism. And if you look at it from the Gingrich perspective, it's a hallelujah rebirth of conservative principles in the Reagan model that uh, is the bedrock that lawmakers should go back to. So what is the lesson of the 1990 agreement? The anti-tax proponents in the Republican politics say the deal never achieved the spending reductions promised and was a failure. Bush partisans say the deal was a rare act of courage for a president who knew the political hit he was going to take. For going back on his pledge, Jeb Bush, not surprisingly, said the deal was one of the greatest acts of presidential courage in modern times. Defined by a president doing something that was clearly not in his political interest or that was politically quite difficult. Well, that's certainly the case here, but it's also a sign sign of why conservatives eyed Jeb Bush suspiciously, because for them, this was a great selling out of the cause by his father. And so one of the reasons Jeb Bush would not sign the Americans for Tax Reform's pledge, promising not to raise taxes if he were elected president. But what does this tell us about the current moments of attempted bipartisanship and whether they're possible? Well, the deal that was agreed to in 1990 caused all of this tumult in the Republican Party. And a lot of that is with us today in both parties, but particularly in the Republican Party. And so would you even be able to have the messy success that you had in 1990? Well, there are a lot of ways that things have changed and we'll end on this note in politics over those 27 years. The first is that the system of partisanship has gotten so much more ingrained, which is to say that the partisanship and the partisan uh, splits in Congress are so much more ingrained now. So it's the case that the most liberal Republican is still much more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. That wasn't the case in 1990. You also have a case where presidents, the split ticket voting that used to create a structural incentive for senators to cross the aisle 
has gone away. Now, this has been a long-term trend in politics, but in the Reagan and Nixon presidencies, you had 50% of the senators from the states that Reagan and Nixon won were senators representing the opposite party. That meant if you were a Democratic senator in a state that Reagan or Nixon won, you had to worry about those Republicans in your state who had voted for the president, but also voted for you. It kept you more concerned with the thoughts of people in the other party. There were 103 districts up for grabs in 1992. Now, in the House races, there are maybe 20 to 30. What does that mean? Well, that means that the 80 or so other districts have been locked in through gerrymandering. Now, there's gerrymandering, there's the the increased partisanship, and there's also the sorting, the fact that we don't live near people who are different from us the way we used to. All of that has created a case, a situation in which the partisanship and the prime and the districts and the states that are one party affairs, it means that the that really your toughest race, if you're a member, can often now be your primary, not the general election. Well, the general election is one that incentivizes, the system incentivizes people in the middle, or it used to. Primaries incentivize people who can make the most powerful distinctions about issues of purity. If you're worried about purity attacks in your primary, and there aren't, you're not ruled by swing voters, which is sort of the platonic ideal of the man or woman who weighed all of the decisions and then came voted for the best way or supported the best way after all ideas had been put forward. If you're worried about the purity, then you're going to be less malleable when it comes to compromise, which is the point of the entire American system. The Republican Party is obviously more anti-tax than ever before, calling on these. And that's just another function of partisanship. I mean, it's more Second Amendment than before. It's more pro-life than before, as just as Democrats are increasingly becoming more beholden to their uh, core issues. The change in the media models are obviously different now than in 1990. Fox and MSNBC and the Internet, of course, cater and talk radio, cater and drive partisans in a way uh, that was not as prevalent in 1990. And also, of course, money, the money in politics, which is driven by the ideology. But anybody who might take a, a position against their party or against the orthodoxy of the grassroots of their party can now expect that outside money will fund a primary opponent where you will lose when you're when you're coming up against those purity tests or purity arguments. So even though it was a bloody and um, grim situation in 1990 for the omnibus budget agreement, it nevertheless passed. It nevertheless got bipartisan agreement. And the terrain is so much more difficult now for a similar kind of bill that would have the kinds of trade-offs that were part of that legislation. So that's the cheery picture here in the month of September in the year 2017, almost the 27th anniversary of that overcast day in the Rose Garden, where the president and leaders of both parties came together to announce that they had an agreement. That's it for this edition of The Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Our executive producer of Panoply Podcasts is Steve Lichtai, and our chief content officer is Andy Powers. We're grateful to our Whistle Stop crackerjack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, who braved a kitchen mishap to ship us the research for this round. Brian is one of the editors of Made by History, a new Washington Post history section. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. You can explore the entire roster of podcasts at www.panoply.fm. 
until our next meeting. Thanks for being out there. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. 